Section 21 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 9, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary Beatrice of Modena, Chapter 6, Part 3. On the 15th, the King of France, with the Dauphin, visited the King of England at Saint-Germain. James received them at the end of the Hall of Guards, and after they had talked some time, they went together to the Queen's apartment, where three fauteuils were placed, but the King of England would not sit to leave the Dauphin standing, who could not occupy the third fauteuil in his presence. After standing some time, by the chimney-piece, chatting with that prince, James, turning to the King of France, said, we are determined to have no more ceremonies after this visit. I will begin this evening. The frank proposition of the sailor king did not suit the formality of the court of France, which two successive Spanish queens had rendered almost solemnly absurd on the subject of ceremonials, as that of the escurial. James and Mary Beatrice found that if they expected to be treated according to their own rank, they must condescend to the follies of persons of narrow intellect and strong prejudices, and conform to regulations which they, as aliens and suppliants, could not presume to censure. Policy and the exigency of circumstances taught the fallen Queen of England the necessity of propitiating a lady of comparatively humble birth, but whose mastermind rendered her of tenfold more importance than all the French princesses put together, with the haughty dauphiness at their head. It is scarcely necessary to explain that this was Madame de Maintenon, the bosom counsellor of Louis the Fourteenth, she who wore the fleur-de-lis and ermine mantle, which none but the wife of a king of France may venture to assume, though public opinion forbade the widow Scarron to bear the title of queen. The first time Madame de Maintenon came to Saint-Germain, Mary Beatrice, having made her wait a few minutes, graciously apologized for it, by expressing her regret that she had lost so much of her conversation. The compliment was well judged, and Her Majesty had the good fortune of making a favorable impression on her, whose influence governed the latter years of the Grand Monarch. Everyone, says Madame de Sevigny, is pleased with this queen. She has so much wit. She said to our king, on seeing him caressing the Prince of Wales, who is very beautiful, I had envied the happiness of my son in being unconscious of his misfortunes, but now I regret the unconsciousness which prevents him from being sensible of your majesty's goodness to him. Everything, she says, is full of good sense, but it is not so with her husband. He is brave, but his capacity is ordinary, and he recounts all that has passed in England without emotion. He is a good man, nevertheless." The anguish that oppressed the heart of the exiled queen, while successfully laboring to establish a hard-earned popularity in the French court, is unaffectedly avowed in the following letter, addressed by her, evidently at this period, to her faithful friend, the Countess of Lichfield. Saint-Germain, January 21st. You cannot imagine, dear Lady Lichfield, how pleased I was to receive two letters from you, so full of kindness as they were. I hope you do not think I am so unreasonable as to expect you should leave your husband and children to come to me. I am in too miserable a condition to wish that my friends should follow it if they can be in their own country. I was overjoyed to hear by everybody, as well as by the king, that your lord had behaved himself so well. 
I do not doubt but he will continue to do so, and I am sure you will encourage him to it. The king is entirely satisfied with him, and does not dislike what he did, for he had the example and advice of honest men, which he may well follow. The letter sent by your sister was of no great consequence, but by the courier you had reason to think it so. I thank God I am very well in my health, and have the satisfaction to see my poor child grow visibly every day, and the king look better than he has done this great while. I want no less to enable me to support my other misfortunes, which are so extraordinary that they move every one's pity in this country, so that they may cry and pray for us perpetually. I hope God will hear their prayers and make us happy again, but no change or condition shall ever lessen the real kindness I have for you. M.R. This letter is written on plain note paper and is enclosed in a torn and hastily folded envelope superscribed for the Countess of Litchfield. It is sealed with the famous diamond seal always used by the consort of James II in her correspondence with the adherents of the Jacobite cause. The impression is her royal cipher, M.R., interlaced, surmounted with the crown matrimonial of England. The manner in which Mary Beatrice speaks of her infant boy in this most interesting letter contains, in its unaffected simplicity, a refutation of the complicated falsehoods with which the injustice of a party had labored to impugn his birth. When the fallen queen thanks God, in the midst of her misfortunes, that she has the satisfaction of seeing her poor child grow visibly every day, everyone recognizes the voice of nature and the genuine feelings of a mother's heart. The purple velvet and ermine in which Mary Beatrice dressed her boy, not being the orthodox costume for babies of his rank in France, excited the astonishment of the ladies of that court, as we find from a remark made by Madame de Sevigny in a letter dated January 31, 1689. Madame de Chaunesse has seen the Queen of England, with whom she is much pleased. The little prince is dressed like a merry Andrew, but beautiful and joyous, leaping and dancing, when they held him up. He was then between seven and eight months old, a most attractive age, and the bracing, salubrious air of Saint-Germain had evidently been of much service to the royal infant, whose health was so delicate in England. The exiled king and queen endeavored to beguile their cares by going with Louis the Fourteenth to Saint-Sur, to witness the representation of Racine's new and popular tragedy of Esther. Mary Beatrice was seated between the two kings, having Louis on her left hand and her husband on her right. Louis invited them to visit him at the Trianon the following day. He received his royal guests under the portico, and went all over the palace with them, chatting very pleasantly with them both. While the two kings were engaged in a long private conference, Mary Beatrice played at cards, with Monsieur for her partner, against the Duchesses of Epernon and Ventadour. In the evening, they all went to see the ballet, where Her Majesty was seated, as before, between her husband and Louis the Fourteenth. She was attended by the Countess of Sussex, Lady Sophia Buckley, and Madame de Montecuculli, her ladies-in-waiting. Madame de Maintenon was also in the tribune, with several French ladies of high rank. The formal pleasures of the French court had no power to cheer the hearts that were full of anxious thoughts of England. James had addressed a manifesto on the 4th of January to his lords, spiritual and temporal, and his subjects in general, claiming their allegiance, 
stating at full the causes that compelled him to withdraw from the personal restraint under which he had been placed by the dutch guards he expressed his desire to return for the purpose of assembling a free parliament for the redress of all grievances instead of a free parliament ninety-five peers taking the legislative power into their hands empowered the prince of orange to assemble a convention composed of persons who had been members of parliament in charles the second's reign the lord mayor aldermen and fifty common councilmen of the city of london to settle the government the archbishop of canterbury refused to assist in the deliberations of an illegally constituted assembly supported by a foreign army the greater number of the bishops adhered to their oaths of allegiance to james a majority of two voices only in the house of peers confirmed the vote of the convention that the throne was vacant in consequence of james's flight to france on the sixth of february it was decided by a majority of twenty that the prince and princess of orange should be proclaimed king and queen the smallness of the majority by which this measure was carried proves how closely the parties were balanced eight prelates with the archbishop of canterbury at their head including five of the seven who had in commemoration of their resistance to james and imprisonment in the tower been called the seven pillars of the church preferred the loss of their bishoprics to transferring their allegiance to the new sovereigns their example was followed by a third of the clergy a movement and a change took place on that occasion in the church throughout england in which the non-juring ministers occupied a position not dissimilar to those of the free church in scotland in the present day they forsook all rather than violate their principles and were reduced with their families to the greatest state of destitution in some instances whole congregations adhered to the deprived minister party ran high in parishes and even in families on the subject of these divisions and good christians beheld with pain a breach in the unity of the church of england king james was meantime reminded by his viceroy tyrconnell that he was still the undisputed sovereign of ireland and in compliance with the urgent invitations of his subjects there he determined to make his appearance in that realm and with the concurrence of the king of france he began to make preparations for his expedition on the twentieth of february james lost a powerful friend by the sudden death of his niece the queen of spain who had been urgent with the king her husband to render him assistance in his distress her decease plunged the courts of versailles and saint germain into grief and mourning james prepared himself for his expedition to ireland rather in the spirit of a pilgrim devotee than a warrior by visiting the nunnery of chalot where the heart of the late queen his mother was enshrined and offering up his prayers for the repose of her soul that convent was founded by henrietta and when a boy he had been accustomed to attend her thither though at that time opposed with all the vehemence of his enthusiastic temperament to the doctrines of the church of rome and on very bad terms with his mother in consequence of their differences of opinion yet he told the lady abbess that he had great pleasure in the recollections associated with his visits to chalot he besought the prayers of the sisters for the success of his voyage and expressed the pleasure he felt at the thought that his queen would often come there during his absence to perform her devotions at the request of mary beatrice louis the fourteenth had not only forgiven lauzun for all past offences but elevated him to the rank of a duke 
and King James, in acknowledgment of the services he had rendered in conducting the escape of the Queen and Prince, invested him, on the eve of his expedition to Ireland, with the Order of the Garter, in the Church of Notre Dame. The collar and jewel of the Order, which were very richly ornamented with diamonds, were the same that had belonged to Charles I, and which had been entrusted after his death, and the subsequent reign of terror, to the care of honest Isaac Walton, who faithfully returned them to Charles II. Lauzun was one of the hundred noble French gentlemen who volunteered their services to King James on this occasion. James's force consisted of 2,500 English and Scotch emigrants, his funds of 400,000 crowns, a loan from the French monarch. Louis supplied him with vessels and offered to assist him with troops. James's reluctance to employ foreign soldiers was still insuperable, and he replied, I will recover my own dominions with my own subjects, or perish in the attempt. Like many a lofty spirit, he was compelled to bend to circumstances without achieving his object. Louis had provided equipages, camp beds, and toilet furniture of a magnificent description for the use of the royal adventurer. At parting, he unbuckled his sword and presented it, telling him he hoped it would prove fortunate. The French courtiers, who delighted in anything resembling a scene, were greatly excited with this romantic incident, and talked much of Hector, Amadis, and Orondates. The farewell compliment of Louis to his royal guest was blunt, but spoken in the spirit of true kindness. The best wish that I can offer to your majesty, said he, is that I may never see you again. The separation between Mary Beatrice and her lord was of a heart-rending character. They parted as lovers who expected to meet no more on earth. Everyone felt for the uncontrollable anguish of the queen. Her adieus were interrupted with tears, with cries and swoonings. She withdrew the same day, February 28th, from the palace of Saint-Germain with her infant boy, into the deep retirement of the convent at Poissy with the intention of passing the whole of her time in tears and prayers for the safety of her ill-fated lord the catastrophe that befell the king's favorite valet who was drowned at pont de say was considered ominous the vessel in which he had embarked with his majesty's luggage being lost with all the costly presents bestowed by louis the fourteenth james travelled overland in his coach having with him his son the duke of berwick and the earls of powis dumbarton and melford and thomas stuart he crossed the faubourgs of Paris, reached Orlan the same night, and took the route through Bretagne. At Rochebernard, the Duc de Chalness received the exiled monarch with great state, and would have conducted him to a bedchamber to repose himself, but James said, I only want something to eat. They had provided him a splendid supper, entirely of fish. He embarked at Brest on the 6th or 7th of March, and landed at Kensale in Ireland on the 12th. He was received with acclamations. His viceroy, Tyr Canel, had got together an army of 40,000 men, but chiefly made up of half-naked unarmed peasants ready to fight, but having neither arms nor military discipline. James entered Dublin in triumph, and opened his parliament with declarations of religious liberty to all persuasions. Dundee and Balcares urged him to come to Scotland, where the highland chiefs were eager for his presence, and hosts of shepherds would start up warriors at the first wave of his banner on the mountain tops. And he was entreated by a strong party of faithful friends and repentant foes to hasten to England without further delay. 
even those subtle deep-seeing foxes of the revolution halifax and danby assured sir john raresby that king james might be reinstated in less than four months if he would only dismiss his priests some of the authors of the revolution began to make overtures to their old master in the same spirit which sometimes leads members of the jockey club to hedge their bets when they see cause to suspect that they have ventured their money on a wrong horse the morning after the news of king james's landing in ireland became public in london it was discovered that some wag had written on the walls of whitehall a great house to be let by st john's day intimating by this pasquinade that the present royal tenants of the palace would be compelled to vacate it before the midsummer quarter the proceedings of those tenants will be related in the life of queen mary the second those of king james belong to general history and can only be briefly alluded to occasionally in elucidation of the personal history of his consort the king of france did not wish mary beatrice to bury herself in the seclusion of poissy during the absence of her lord and endeavoured by all the means in his power to tempt her to gayer scenes but her heart was filled with too much anxiety and all she seemed to live for was her child and letters from james or news of his proceedings louis promised to send especial couriers whenever he received dispatches to convey the news to her as early as possible from poissy the queen went for a few days to the convent of chalot while there she formed a spiritual friendship with the superior and several of the nuns of this community business recalled her majesty to her lonely court at saint-germain from whence she addressed the following characteristic letter to the abbess of chalot the original is written in french and has never before been published in any form indeed the whole of the voluminous correspondence between the consort of james the second and her cloistered friends at chalot has been carefully hidden for a century and a half from every eye first in the archives of that convent and since its dissolution in the archives au royaume de france saint germain twenty eighth of april sixteen eighty nine the too great respect that you have for me my dear mother prevents you from writing to me and the proper regard i have for you obliges me to write to you for i take great pleasure in telling you that ever since i left your holy cloister i have wished to return thither i believe however there is self-love in that for without deceit i have not found any real repose since the king left me but at chalot it is seventeen days since i have heard any tidings from him which greatly disquiets me since i cannot give any credit to news that comes from any other quarter i implore the charity of your good prayers and those of all your community i salute them with all my heart and more especially my dear sisters la de posse and the assistant i would entreat them to offer for me one of their acts of simplicity and of humility and you my dear mother to offer also some portion of the numerous acts of virtue that you perform every day for me who am from the bottom of my heart your good friend marie r the concluding requests involve some of the vital differences of belief between christians of the reformed church and those of the church of rome for however efficacious the prayers of holy men and women may be it is contrary to scripture warrant to believe that any person has good works to spare for others the piety of mary beatrice became of a more spiritual and enlightened character as she advanced through many sufferings on her christian course 
very precious to the wounded spirit of the fallen queen of england were the sympathy and reverence which she received from the nuns of chalot in the days of her adversity and the friendship that was commenced between her and some of the ladies of that community was only dissolved by death she had her preferences among them and the three who appeared to hold the first place in her regard were madame catherine angelique priolo madame claire angelique de beauvais and mademoiselle françoise angelique de mesme mary beatrice often calls these ladies her three angeliques she also mentions with great affection a sister whom she calls her dear little portress and the dear sister of dumbarton lady henrietta douglas who took the name of marie palais at her profession many are the presents of fruit cakes confections and vegetables fish and bread that are acknowledged by her majesty in the course of her letters with expressions of gratitude to the members of this community in the postscript to this letter she speaks of the little offerings for her table that had been sent to her by her cloistered friends i have eaten heartily at my dinner of your bread and salad for which i thank you but i forbid you to be at the trouble of sending more of it to me i ought at any rate to send for it i beg you to thank mademoiselle de la motte for me for the preserves she has sent me they are very good but too much to send at one time i have promised lady almond this letter should answer for her as well as for me for she does not know how to write in french this lady was italian i believe continues her majesty archly that one of my letters will be a little more agreeable than those of her secretary adieu my dear mother i entreat st francis xavier to hear the prayers that you will make to-morrow for me to obtain for me of god either consolation or resignation m r superscribed to the reverend mother superior of the daughters of saint marie de chalot endorsed first letter of the queen to the mother received in sixteen eighty nine mary beatrice found it necessary for the sake of her royal husband's interest to propitiate the king of france by emerging from her tearful retirement and appearing at some of the splendid feats and entertainments which he devised for her amusement the solicitude that magnificent prince manifested for her comfort and the many distinguishing marks of attention he showed her were exaggerated into signs and tokens of a more lively regard than their friendship madame de maintenon became uneasy and betrayed symptoms of jealousy yet observes our authority this suspected passion for the queen of england had no other foundation than the sympathy and innocent attentions which the king could not help offering to a princess whose virtues were acknowledged by all the world and which he would have admired in any one mary beatrice was moreover the adopted daughter of louis and his regard for her was a sentiment not a passion a sentiment which in its refinement and generosity forms one of the redeeming traits of his character he treated her it is true with the homage which is always paid to a beautiful and intellectual woman in france but it was her conjugal tenderness that excited his respect she was always a queen in her prosperity said he but in her adversity she is an angel the dauphin who had a great esteem for mary beatrice frequently came to see her but the dauphiness who was jealous of the higher title borne by the unfortunate queen rarely visited her one day the dauphin brought his little son the duke of burgundy to saint germain and the queen inquired of the dauphin if she ought not to give him a fauteuil 
the reply being in the affirmative he was duly inducted into one of those important seats then came monsieur madame and their son the duc de chartres they had fauteuils but the young duke only a pliant these absurd rags of ceremonials were always noted by the journalists of the time even those who held the office of ministers of state with as much gravity as if connected with the fate of empires weariness and vexation of spirit it was for the anxious consort of james the second to bestow the attention of an overburdened mind on such follies situated as she was however she was compelled to condescend to trifles and to learn the hard lesson to a lofty mind of making herself everything to all the world the receipt of a letter from her absent lord written during the favourable aspect of affairs which flattered him on his first arrival in ireland filled her heart with joy which she hastened to communicate to her friends at chalot in the following animated note written in great haste and without distinctive date but the allusion to the siege of deary fixes it to may saint germain tuesday matin i was so much pressed with business and visits all yesterday that i had not a single moment of time left me to give and impart my joy to my dear mother and her dear community having received while finishing my dinner a very long letter from the king of recent date which assured me that he was in perfect health at dublin and that he expected every day the news of the taking of the town which is besieged that is deary god be forever praised for that he has heard your prayers and those of your dear daughters who i doubt not will return thanks to him to-day in concluding your novino do the best for me my beloved mother and believe me by inclination as much as by gratitude yours and your daughters m r this letter has been carefully endorsed subsequently fourth letter which must never be produced because matters have not succeeded in ireland the early successes of king james in ireland were rendered useless for want of money he was compelled to raise the value of the currency in the first instance and finally to ruin his cause by coining brass money to pass at the nominal value of silver the expedient of bills and banknotes had never been adopted by the stuart monarchs as the chief representatives of imaginary hundreds and thousands of pounds mary beatrice painfully aware of the exigency of her husband's circumstances became an earnest suppliant for money to her royal friend louis but louis was neither able nor willing to lavish wholesale sums in the irish war he was ready to conduce her to domestic comforts on a magnificent scale but his own extensive buildings at versailles were yet to be paid for he referred everything relative to public business to his ministers to them the anxious queen next addressed herself and at last her impassioned pleadings wrought on seignelay to send a welcome but inefficient supply of money and arms to her royal husband the first time her name is mentioned as connected with public business is in reference to the assistance she gave to the destitute champions of king james's cause in scotland by pawning part of her jewels and sending the proceeds to dundee for the purchase of arms and ammunition i was extremely surprised writes that gallant chief to lord melford when i saw mr drummond the advocate in a highland habit come up to loghaver to me and give account that the queen had sent two thousand pounds sterling to london to be paid to me for the king's service and that two more were coming i did not think the queen had known anything of our affairs i received a very obliging letter from her by mr crane dundee's letter is dated june twenty eighth the seasonable supply which mary beatrice had sent him 
and enabled him to make a vigorous and triumphant advance he gathered the clans round the standard of king james and on the eighteenth of july defeated king william's forces under mackay in the pass of killacrankey and having taken the dutch standard fell mortally wounded in the moment of victory with him fell the cause of king james in scotland the queen did her utmost to keep alive the interest of her royal husband by writing to their old friends and acquaintances in scotland and sending over agents and busy intriguers to nurse up plots for risings in his favour in various parts of the ancient realm of the stuarts at this epoch mary beatrice assumes the unwanted character of a woman of business james's ministers were astonished at her acute perceptions sound sense and application i confess writes lord melford to king james i never saw any one understand affairs better than the queen and she has really gained so much esteem from the king here and his ministers that i am truly of opinion that if it had not been for her the wicked reports spread here had made your affairs go entirely wrong at the court i dare not continues his lordship enter to speak of the prince for adding to this letter only i do protest that he is the finest child i ever saw god bless your majesty the queen and him for your comfort grant you the possession of your own and that you may never have a worse servant than etc meaning himself a worse counsellor james never had his letters when intercepted had a very bad influence on his royal master's cause as they betrayed a treacherous and vindictive temper the queen finding melford's presence mischievous at st germain got rid of him as handsomely as she could by sending him to compliment the new pope and to endeavour to obtain money for the exigencies of the stuart cause from him his holiness expressed great sympathy but protested his inability to assist her majesty with anything but his prayers her ambassador though a catholic did not appear to consider these of any particular value meantime the queen was indefatigable in her exertions of the advancement of her husband's interests in the court of france sometimes she was cheered with flattering tidings of successes in ireland on the last day of the year sixteen eighty nine she writes to her friend the abbess of chalot in a perfect ecstasy it is always on a saturday my dear mother that i have news of the king i believe that my dear daughters of sion may already begin to sing their canticles of praise to the most high whose puissant arm without the aid of human means has almost entirely destroyed our enemies her majesty goes on to express her hope that the king would soon be master of ireland and asks in conclusion the continuation of the prayers of the holy sisters of chalot this letter like all on that subject is endorsed on the good successes in the war in ireland which had no foundation therefore this letter must never be shown little did the cautious recluse to whom they were addressed imagine the possibility of the concatenation of circumstances which has rendered this jealously hoarded correspondence available material for the biography of the royal writer when mary beatrice first used to make her visits to this convent the abbess insisted on treating her with the ceremonies due to royalty and made her dine in her state apartment but early in the year sixteen ninety the queen expressed her positive determination not to avail herself of these marks of respect in the following letter to the superior i thank you my dearest mother for the offer you have made me of giving me a dinner in your chamber of assembly but i cannot be satisfied with that 
I wish to eat in the refectory with you and the others, and I pray you to expect me on Tuesday at eleven o'clock, supposing this to be a fast day. I propose to depart from thence at eight o'clock in the morning, and to be at Matins at ten o'clock, in the church of our good fathers. I beg you to have them informed of it. I had already ordained the duty to Riva to bring you the provisions for dinner on Tuesday, as I am persuaded that my sister, Marie Francoise, will prepare it with much pleasure, since there will be a portion for me, which I charge her to make similar to the others, without form or ceremony. Adieu, my dearest mother, adieu to all our sisters. I have pleasure in thinking that I shall soon be, for some hours at Chalot. I have great need of such solace, for since I left you, I have had repose neither in body or in mind. The letters of Mary Beatrice to her absent lord, at this exciting period, if they should ever be discovered, would, of course, surpass in interest any other portion of her correspondence. Her love for him was so absorbing a feeling, that it prompted her to write the most earnest entreaties to those about him, to be careful of his personal safety. Of this, the following letter is an instance. Queen Mary Beatrice to the Earl of Turquenel, Saint-Germain, April 5th, 1690. This is my third letter since I heard from you, but I shall not make it a long one, for the bearer of it knows a great deal of my mind, or rather, of all the thoughts of my heart. For I was so overjoyed, to meet with one I durst speak freely to, that I opened my heart to him, and said more than I should like to do again in haste of anybody. I therefore refer myself to him, to tell you all we spoke of, for I have no secrets for you. One thing only I must say, to beg of you to have a care of the king, and not to let him be so much encouraged by the good news he will hear, for I dread nothing at this time, but his going so fast into England, in a manner dangerous and uncertain for himself, and disadvantageous to those of our persuasion. I have writ an unreasonable long letter to him, to tell him my mind, and have said much to Lord Dover to say to him, for it is not probable that I shall ever have so safe an opportunity of writing again. Pray put him, that is the king, often in mind of being careful of his person, if not for his own sake, for mine, my sons, and all our friends, that are undone if anything amiss happens to him. I dare not let myself go upon this subject. I am so full of it. I know you love the king. I am sure you are my friend, and therefore I need say the less to you, but cannot end my letter without telling you that I never in my life had a truer, nor a more sincere friendship for anybody than I have for you. M.R. The orthography of this letter is rather obsolete than illiterate. The queen has evidently studied the language of her adopted country, so far as to have overcome the difficulties of spelling its capricious words of treacherous sound, in which she succeeds better than most foreigners, and indeed many natives of the same era. The epistles of her daughters-in-law, Mary, Princess of Orange, and the Princess Anne, are not so well spelled, and the construction of those of the latter is infinitely inferior. Mary Beatrice, however, retains obstinately one peculiarity of a foreigner writing English. She always writes the first person, lowercase i, instead of the capital I, that important egotism of our language, in which, to be sure, ours stands alone among those of Europe. 
the worthy collector from whose stores the above tender and feminine letter is quoted seems to have read it with surprise for he proceeds to express a generous indignation at the idea universally entertained of the unfortunate wife of james the second he observes that the character of this queen has been most unjustly described by historians she is represented as devoid of almost all natural affection of the meanest understanding and of such defective education as to be incapable of reading or writing mary beatrice corresponded fluently in italian french and english and she possessed sufficient knowledge of latin to read the scriptures daily in the vulgate this practice she never omitted however much she might be pressed for time that she was excessively occupied at this period may be perceived from the following letter which she wrote to the superior of chalot to excuse herself from assisting at the profession of a novice who had been desirous of receiving the white veil from her she says may third it is with much difficulty that i abstract this little moment to you that i was greatly annoyed at not being able to be with you last week and that i will do all in my power to be there on wednesday or thursday next week in the meantime i have ordered riva to tell all the news that i have had from ireland and elsewhere for i have not time to do it having three expresses to dispatch before i can be with you i expect every moment another courier from ireland whom i know was at brest since last friday and i cannot learn what has become of him i shall be glad to be excused from the profession of the daughter of the holy sacrament for when i am at chalot i do not seek to go out i beg you to make my compliments to all our dear sisters and in particular to my dear sisters the assistant and la de posse i am dying to be among you and in the meantime i will try to unite my imperfect prayers with the holy ones that they offer to god who is pleased to declare for us a thousand times more than we deserve adieu my dearest mother i am yours from the depth of my heart m r this letter is certainly written in a cheerful strain mary beatrice had succeeded in raising a large sum on some of her jewels to send to the king although a supply little proportioned to the greatness of his need but she had prevailed on seven lay the french minister of marine to equip and send a fleet to st george's channel this fleet drove william's admiral herbert and his squadron out of bantry bay and landed some military stores for king james davaux the french minister in attendance on that prince exultingly announced to him that the french had defeated the english fleet it is for the first time then retorted the royal seaman with an irrepressible burst of national feeling his consort however could not refrain from rejoicing in the success of the expedition which she had been the cause of sending to his assistance and when tourville another french admiral defeated the once invincible british fleet at beachy head on the first or second of july she wrote a long and highly complimentary letter of congratulation to him if says she we are so fortunate as to return soon to our own country i shall always consider that you were the first to open the way to it for it was effectually shut against us before the success of this engagement to which your good conduct has contributed so much but if i do not deceive myself it appears to me to be completely open provided the king could gain some little time in ireland which i hope he will but i tremble with fear lest the prince of orange who sees clearly that it is his interest so to do should push the king and force him to give battle 
That fear was already realized. The letter of the apprehensive queen was written July 20th. The Battle of the Boyne had been fought on the first of that month. King James had chosen his post skillfully, but William's fine veteran, well-accoutred troops, doubled the numbers of that unfortunate monarch's rabble rout. It was impossible for the result to be otherwise than a complete overthrow. Yet, strange to say, rumor brought the flattering news to Paris of a brilliant victory won by James, in which the Prince of Orange, it was said, was slain. Great rejoicings and illuminations took place in consequence. This mistake only rendered the disastrous truth more agonizing to the consort of the luckless James. Tyrconnell has been greatly blamed for advising James to quit Ireland with such precipitancy, and this again has been imputed to his paying too much regard to the feelings of the queen, who was so apprehensive of the king's person as to be in a constant state of agony about it. She had frequently begged him to have a special care of his majesty's safety. On the 27th of June, Turkinell unluckily received another passionate letter from her majesty, telling him that he must not wonder at her repeated instances on that head, for unless he saw her heart, he could not imagine the torment she suffered on that account, and must always continue to do so, let things go as they would. King James landed at Brest, July 20th, New Style, with his two sons, Berwick, who had performed prodigies of valor, and Henry Fitzjames, likewise Turkinell and Lord Powis. From Brest he sent an express to his queen, to acquaint her with his arrival there and his misfortune, telling her at the same time, that he was sensible he should be blamed for having hazarded a battle on such inequalities, but that he had no other post so advantageous, and was loath to have abandoned all without a stroke. Mary Beatrice, though she was overwhelmed with grief at the loss of the battle, was consoled by the news of her husband's safety, and she declared, in rather quaint terms, that after having broken her head with thinking, and her head with vexation, at the king's ruin, and that of their faithful friends, without being herself in a condition to help them, she felt it was an unspeakable alleviation that the king was safe, for if she had heard of the loss of the battle before she knew of the king's arrival, she knew not what would have become of her, and though she confessed that it was a dismal thing to see him so unhappy as he was in France, yet in spite of her reason, her heart was glad to see him there. James remained a few days on the coast of Brittany for the purpose of sending arms, money, and provisions to the relief of the unfortunate gentleman who continued to maintain the contest in Ireland and also in Scotland. Mary Beatrice, after the death of Dundee, continued to keep up a correspondence with their Scottish friends, and had drawn Sir James Montgomery and Lord Ross into the League for King James, to whom she had sent fifteen thousand pounds. Through the treachery of Lord Ross, and some others engaged, the project ended in disappointment. End of section 21